Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Good morning. Hey, so I've had a few people ask, uh, what is North Main's protocol for coronavirus? And we do have one, actually. Um, it is, uh, if you're sick, stay home, okay? Now, I don't mean that curt or flippantly, but if you are exhibiting any symptoms or any signs that you may be sick, it's better for yourself and those around you that you, you stay home or get the medical help you need. Um, if you are, um, have been in close contact with somebody that has it, probably not a bad idea to either get checked out or just take the necessary measures to, you know, be cautious, okay? Um, our philosophy at North Main has been this, common sense and good judgment. Don't, this idea of doing unto others as you would have do unto you, uh, we normally would not want somebody to do something bad to us. So the proper response then in the golden rule is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So don't throw around your weight of arrogance and pride. Uh, instead, with the humble perspective that only Christ can give, live like Christ in all you do. And one of the things I said and have said um, as your pastor and our pastors on staff have said is we couldn't, we can't guarantee your safety during a pandemic, nor could we prior to a pandemic, okay? Even if we're taking whatever necessary measures we need to necessarily take to clean, to disinfect, a lot of that responsibility is on your shoulders as well. Uh, we do ask if you can wear a mask. If you come to the church not wearing a mask, we're not going to turn you away. I know there's a face mask mandate, and I know this is a polarizing issue. The reality is we want you to be safe. So however you can be best safe and keep others safe around you, please do that. And we've been doing this for going on a year now, Okay. We've got to find some sense of normalcy within the body of Christ without having to shut down again. God forbid that would have to happen. We are planning on staying open regardless, okay? If I can show up or if one of our pastors on staff can show up to do a sermon, we'll continue to do it and continue to keep the doors open. If we have 100 people, 50 people come down with the, pand- with the, with the virus, then that's a different, that's a different story. Uh, but we'll play it by ear, and that's what we've been doing. The plan is to stay open. Just please be safe. Please keep others safe around you, and just use common sense, good judgment, and be wise, which is, it's it's biblical, right? Um, Philippians chapter 2, which is not our passage of scripture for today, but is a good scripture to go to in times like these, or in any time for that matter. It says, please have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What is that same attitude? Well, you read this whole, basically what turned into an early church hymn in Philippians chapter 2, all of the qualities of Christ. 
In there, Paul's even talking about consider others as better than yourself. So it's about looking toward the interests of others rather than your own interests. So again, just keep that in mind. Those of you at home, we're glad you're at home, glad you're staying safe. Those of you here, we're glad you're here. We ask you to stay safe as best you can. Okay, does that help in this communication with you of what North Main is doing versus what we're not doing at this point? Because I have a lot of people that are asking me these questions. And I know there are a lot of churches in our community that are shutting down again. If we don't have to, the plan is not to, okay? And that's not to say other churches are bad for doing it and we're, or we're bad for not doing it. It's just what we've chosen to do as a congregation, as a leadership, okay? All right, all right. Now, we start a new series today called Eternal Joy. And we are not going to be looking at the stereotypical Christmas passages. And if you, came, if you came today expecting a Christmas message, it will be sort of. And next week, next week will be sort of. We're actually going to be looking at what are called the general epistles in the New Testament. What are the general epistles? What is that? Well, there's a group of writings in the New Testament called the Pauline epistles. My guess is you can kind of derive what that means based on the first word, Pauline, meaning Paul, not Pauline, but Paul, the letters of Paul. Well, what are the other general epistles? Were there other letters written in the New Testament by other writers like Peter or James or John? Uh, And then there are a couple that we just don't know who wrote them. Okay, we think we might know, but we just don't, like Hebrews, all right? Uh, There's a letter in there by Jude, Jude being one of the other half-brothers of Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at James. James seems like a strange uh, book to go to for Christmas or Advent season, but we're looking, and especially this verse, we're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 1 through four specifically, but I'm going to read to you a little bit more than those verses so you can get the fuller context of what uh, James is talking about here. Again, please, I'm begging you, hang in there with me. Again, not your Luke chapter two, there were cattle lowing and the baby is asleep and the angels come to the shepherds kind of sermon. But I promise you, if you hang in there with me, you'll get to see the bigger picture of why we're looking at these stories and these narratives in the general epistles instead of uh, Matthew chapters one and two and Luke chapters one and two, okay? All right. Now, what are some things in life that you deem valuable? Now, you don't have to tell me. That's a rhetorical question. But what are some things you deem valuable? And what is it about those things that gives them value to you? Do other people consider the things that you deem valuable in your life as valuable as well? Because there are certain things that cultures and peoples and and just groups deem that are of value to them. That, that individuals um, also deem as valuable. So gold, we, we think gold is valuable. Silver is valuable. The cost of gold uh, per ounce is going up because of the world's currencies falling down, right? So we, we deem value in gold because it is a standard, if you will, of value. 
What about other things in life? What, what are some other things that are of value, whether they're monetary or otherwise? What about what, what brings something value? I think aging process brings something value. Like, uh, again, I'm not promoting alcoholism here, but just a fine bottle of wine, the longer it ages, the better it gets. Jesus talks about not putting new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because of a fermentation process that stretches the leather out. So old wine is not ever, uh, is, is, is aged, if you will, and has gone through a fermentation process. What about cheeses? If you go to Wisconsin, or if you just like cheese in general, what makes a cheese good? It's stinkiness. How does it get its stinkiness? From aging and deteriorating, the bacteria and all that other fun stuff on it, right? Which ages the cheese. Meats are oftentimes aged. If you age meat, it's supposed to be even more flavorful. It gives it more value. Uh, what about furniture? Uh, you can go to Walmart and get a piece of furniture, or you can go to a furniture store and get a piece of furniture. Somebody that specializes in furniture. There's a difference in quality, correct? I can get a particle board shelf, or I can go get a solid oak shelf. Which one is more valuable? Particle board meaning the boards that are compressed of the sawdust and glue versus hardwood, right? Well, why is the hard, hardwood oak shelving more valuable than the particle board one? They both serve the same purpose. Well, it's because one actually comes from uh, long planks and boards of hardwood that have had to grow from a small tree to a mature tree, so it takes time for that wood to grow, right? And then you have to have a skilled craftsman that knows how to work the wood to bring out the best quality in it. What are some things of value? We're going to be exploring several of these things today in the book of James, and again, let's go ahead and turn there, James chapter 1, and if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the pew. We're actually going to be reading on, online, or excuse me, on the screen from um, the New Living Translation. So normally what I preach from, uh, the pew Bibles are an IV, uh, but if you don't have one with you, you can just look at the screen. So let's look at James' letter. Who is James? James actually was the head of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus' uh, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus was also the half-brother, Jesus. James was also the half-brother of Jesus, just the way Jude was. Now, depending on what tradition and background you're from, um, Catholics don't believe that Jesus had any other siblings, uh, depending on what branch of Catholicism you're from. But Jesus uh, is, is the firstborn of Mary, not born of a man, but rather the, of the Holy Spirit. There's the virgin birth, the miraculous, immaculate conception that happened with Mary, and the angel Gabriel coming to her saying, you will bear a child, and he won't be conceived from Joseph. But Joseph and Mary later on ended up having more children. By natural processes, not miraculous processes. And then we have James and Jude and several other kids coming from their uh, marriage. 
So James, what I often ask this, you probably get sick of me asking this, but here's the question. What do you think it would take for you, for your brother to be convinced that you're God? Or for you to convince, or for you to be convinced that your brother is God? Huh? Okay, it would take a lot, right? Tim can't convince you that? So what would it take for you, for your sibling to convince you that they are wholly divine and from God and they are perfect? Not that they just claim to be perfect, but that they are perfect. But, huh? Lots of miracles. Well, Jesus did a lot of miracles and his brothers weren't necessarily convinced. But there was one thing that convinced James and Jude, Jesus' half-brothers, who wrote epistles in our New Testament that we deem as canonical scripture, what changed their mind? The resurrection, exactly. If you saw your brother, you knew he got crucified, and you knew that it was the worst form of execution possible, that nobody survives crucifixion, and then you see or understand that he's buried in a tomb, sealed up, and he's in there for three days. He's dead. And yet, they see him after those three days. First Corinthians chapter 15, it says he appeared to hundreds of people. Hey, it's me. He even came to his disciples and he told Thomas, one of his disciples, hey, come here. I want you to feel this. Do you feel the nail prints? Come here, put your fingers here. It's, it's really me. My guess is James and Jude and the rest of his family saw those as well and were just amazed and probably had a similar response that Thomas did. Whenever Thomas saw those, he fell at his feet or fell from his feet to his knees at Jesus' feet and cries out, my Lord and my God. James is writing to Jewish believers who had come to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. But at James' time period in the middle of the first century, there's a lot of bad stuff happening to the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean the building, I mean the people of God. What's going on? Well, they're encountering troubles, trials, temptations, difficulties, false teachings, ridicule, mockery. They're being torn away from their families. Some of them are being executed for their faith. And then James writes this. This is so amazing to me. Listen to what he writes in verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Do you notice what title he gives himself? What title is that? A slave. Aptly translated as bond servant, or in the Greek it's called doulos. It is what it is translated as. It is to indenture yourself to someone else. He calls himself a slave of God, but also of who? 
Wouldn't you think, because, I mean, in my selfishness, I'd like, he was my brother, right? Wouldn't you put that on there as your title? And this isn't some false sense of modesty here. This is a true revelation that Jesus was more than his brother. As a matter of fact, who Jesus claimed to be, he ended up being. And James came to the knowledge of that. And he's humbled by the fact that he actually got to grow up in the same home as this guy. And now he knows him, not his brother, the higher and more important title he knows him as is the Lord Jesus. That's awesome. And then in verse two, and this is what we're gonna break apart today. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. <laughs> That's hard. Actually, we're gonna get to that in a minute. Now let me, I don't wanna get ahead of myself. Verse three, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Is it possible to be perfect? But we're just told it is. So wait a minute. Consider it joy when you encounter troubles or trials of many kinds, because it gives your endurance an opportunity for growth, and endurance, when it is fully grown, helps you to be complete and perfect, mature, needing nothing. I don't think James would tell us to do something or any other author of Scripture would tell us to do something if it wasn't achievable this side of heaven. But we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be perfect as he is perfect, to be holy as God is holy. Because, quite frankly... One of the things I hear a lot of Christians say, well, I'm not perfect. You're supposed to be. So what does that mean? Well, let's break that apart in just a minute. Let's go on. And you don't have this on your screen, so um, let me read it to you. Verse 5, if you need wisdom, James says, ask, your generous God, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. How many of you, when you're struggling with something and you want to know more about something, how many of you actually pray, God, help me to understand? God, give me wisdom. Or do you just give up and throw your hands up and say, I just don't know? That's a tough question. I, and, but you don't have the wherewithal to continue to press in to gain more wisdom. And he goes on to, he goes on to say, um, he will not rebuke you for asking, Right? If you've been conditioned for asking questions that it's a bad thing, and those of you who are parents, you have kids, right? Why this? Why this? What's this? What's that? What's this? And we'll go through the whole scenario, especially in the middle of a movie. Dad, why is, <laughs> Dad, why is that happening? What's that person? I don't know. I've never seen this movie before. Let me watch it, and then I'll tell you later, right? You know, it, God is not that way. You ask all of these questions, Right? And he doesn't go, oh, here we go again, you know, or he's not, oh, you know, it's, he, he's willing to give without rebuking you, right? But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Don't waver for a person with a divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea is that's blown and tossed by the wind. 
Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. This is some of the things that pastors often see, or religious leaders often see, is people that want one foot here and one foot here, and they straddle this defining line that defines faith in God from the world. You can't have a foot in both. You have to live in this world for the time being as a believer in Christ, but you, more importantly, are a citizen of the Most High God, of his kingdom. You can't straddle both. You become unsettled. I see too many believers in Christ that are so unsettled in their faith because they are playing both of these sides, and you can't. You either love the world and hate Christ, or you love Christ and hate the world. The only one who could love the world was God himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And when he calls us out of the world, he plants us firmly in faith and righteousness so that that then is the perspective from which we see the rest of the world through his eyes. And it's only by that process that we are then able to love out of the love he's given us, the world around us. I don't mean to be over-philosophical, but that is the theological premise behind the love of God and our love of neighbor. But you can't be a part of this and a part of this. It's one or the other. Let me put it to you this way. How many of you are married? Raise your hand. Or are in a serious relationship with somebody? And let me ask you a question. Would they be okay if you... if if you know, obviously, they're married to you or they're committed to you, but they're also committed to this other person. How would your marriage work out? How do marriages work out when the, the, the spouse is, yes, I'm full, honey, I'm committed to you 100%, but I'm also committed to this other woman or this other man 100%. Does that work out? Okay, so how do you think that's going to work out in our relationship with God? Not good. But see, here's what the church has not done a good job of, defining the premise and defining the relationship, the DTR, right? Define the relationship. Define the relationship. What does that look like? Well, it can't be both and. It's either or in this scenario. Read the minor, just read the prophets, prophetical books in the Old Testament. What were the unfaithful believers in God called? Adulterers. Uses these, they use these strict words that give you a visualization of something that is horribly awful, Right? You cannot love God and love the other things of the world. It's just not possible. Okay? All right, let's continue. Verse 9. Believers who are poor have something to boast about. For God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls. And its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all their achievements. Why is he so hard? Why are the biblical writers so hard on the rich? 
You can't love God and money. I mean, you got all this stuff. It's harder for a rich person to go through an eye of a needle than, or it's easier for them to go through an eye of a needle than to get into the kingdom of heaven. Why, does, why is all of that, why is there always a focus on money? You know, in my experience, the church always focuses on money. They're money-hungry people, right? That's what I hear. The Bible focuses a lot on money. And the real issue is it's not the money, but it's the love of money that becomes the root of the evil. And so in James's day, as in ours, there are people that, that worship success and fame and fortune to the point to where they're willing to do whatever it takes to achieve whatever they can this side of heaven because the world has told them that if they are this, then they are good. And if they are this, then they are not good. But James is turning that upside down just the way Jesus did. He says it's not about fame, fortune, or success in this fallen and broken world. This world tells you, and it's fallen and broken and sinful, that if you were wealthy, if you were successful, if you were famous, then you're good. It would be like me going to a serial killer in prison. And asking about the value, getting meaning and value from life. Tell me about the value of life. Does it seem like a contradiction in terms? Right? You value life, right? Yeah, so much I've killed a bunch of them. Right? That's what a serial killer would tell you. And the, this despicable, dis, just discombobulated reasoning of the mind. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. If the world, which is broken and fallen and evil and wicked, tells you you're good, be careful. The world will give you accolades. But I don't want the accolades of the world. I'd rather have the accolades of Christ. But in order to have the accolades of God through Christ Jesus, guess what I have to give up? The world. Now, it doesn't mean I can't be monetarily rich and still be a believer in Christ. Of course you can. You just can't let that control you. That can't be the dominating factor of your life because if you lose it just like that, will you also lose your faith? I know a lot of people that would. I know a lot of people that would say, you know what? Things are going really good for me. But when the first inkling of anything going bad, then they start to question God. How firmly rooted is your faith? Because this is what he's talking about here. If you lose it all, do you still have faith? When you encounter troubles of many kinds, you lose all your money. You lose your family because of your beliefs. You, you, get, you get a terminal illness. Um, you're tempted to do something wrong, but you don't do it. What are you going to do? What's that look like? Where's your faith? See, that endurance and saying, you know what? I'm not giving up on God because I know he didn't give up on me. And though I may suffer things in this life, I know what eternal life looks like in the beyond. It's no pain, sorrow, sin, death. It's, it's no withering of the body or of life. There is no evil there. There are no wicked people. It is where honesty and truth and goodness reign forever and ever and ever. 
Verse 12, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, this is so important. Remember, when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do, is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So what is he talking about with troubles and temptations? When we endure those trials, we stand firm in faith, our endurance grows, and so does our faith. And then toward the end of all of that whole cycle of, of, of endurance, we grow complete and perfect, needing nothing. We don't need all of the things the world tells us we need, but all we need is God, Christ Jesus. And he goes on to tell us, and don't think of, of, of God as being the one who tempts you. First off, he can never be tempted. Is there anything God can't do? Yes, he can't sin, he can't be tempted, and nor does he tempt anyone else. Those are some things that are just antithetical to his very existence, to who he is. He cannot do those things. And when you get tempted, and I see this a lot, why is God doing this to me? Doing what to you? Sometimes what's being done to you is a result of the consequences of your poor choices, and it's not God's fault at all. And then other times, it's not. Other times, you've not done a thing wrong, but stuff is hitting the fan, and we want to point a finger of blame. That is human nature. Human nature wants to deflect and point outward that the reason that there's a problem in this world is this person or that person. And ultimately, God, uh, people point to God. He's the one. If he's truly all-powerful and all-good and all-loving, then he's going to fix my problem. He has fixed your problem. There's a place called Calvary, 2,000 years ago, give or take, where he solidified a decision in a garden to take the cup of judgment that God was pouring out and desired to pour out on all people because all have sinned and fallen short of his glorious standard. And so he, Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, was crucified. When I hear people say, why isn't God doing something? I say, what more do you want him to do? It's not that I don't understand that there are troubles and trials and difficulties in life. Read the book of Job in the Old Testament. It says he was a righteous man and God was bragging about him. And then stuff starts happening, gets taken away. He goes through tragedy. He gets sick. It gets so bad that his wife even says, curse God and die. He has nobody on his side, not even his wife. And he even questions, God, where are you? Why aren't you dealing with this? Help me. And then at the end of Job, God answers. But he doesn't answer 
with an answer. He answers with a series of questions. Well, I don't want to serve that kind of God. I don't want to believe in that kind of God. The reality is when you read Job and you get to the end and you read chapter after chapter after chapter of God's response to Job, who is a righteous man who hadn't done anything to deserve what he was incurring, and God's saying, Job, where were you when I created the mountains? Where were you when I put the stars in the universe? Where were you when I carved out the depths of the ocean? Job, tell me if you know. And see, I want you to understand this. God isn't being snarky to Job. He isn't being a know-it-all, even though he is. You see, what he's doing is he's trying to give Job a different perspective. As all of us need a different perspective when we go through troubles of many kinds. God may not be causing the tragedy in your life. But he may be allowing you to go through it to strengthen you. And those who are too weak to go through the struggles are unstable and tossed like a small boat on a raging ocean at times. See, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. He blesses you. Why? How does he do that? How am I going to be blessed? I've not done anything to deserve this. He blesses you by strengthening you, by growing you. Verse 16, don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good is a perfect gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us, giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. When somebody tells you that we are just some other animal on the face of the earth, that's a lie straight from hell. And I don't think that's too harsh of a word to say. We are not just one piece of the created order. We are the prized possession of God. And if you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, you see the care with which God not only created the whole of creation, but specifically humanity. He spoke everything into existence except for the first humans. And you know what he does with Adam? It says he forms him out of the dust of the ground. We get this perfect image that God could have spoken us into existence, but instead he forms us. And he does this today, the psalmist says, by knitting us together in our mother's womb. He is still in the forming process. And we are blessed that he gives us an opportunity to work in that creative process as the two become one and are joined together. But I digress. He breathes into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life. Just that imagery hit me several years ago. I, was, I, I remember teaching in the teenagers class on a Wednesday night, and I was going through some theological topics, and, and it hit me. I don't know why it had never resonated with me before, the creation story the intimacy with which God created humans. And I'm standing up there teaching in the class and it pops into my head like a, a revelation. It's just like doors open and lights go on and I'm like, <gasps> he could have spoken us into existence, but he didn't. And I had to sit down 
You ever have those moments where you're like, oh, let me take this, I gotta, just a minute, I gotta take this in. And I remember sitting down and just thinking of the intimacy with which God created us, which is what that first word in our mission statement is all about, to know Christ intimately. Comes from that term in the Old Testament called yada, it's a Hebrew word, which means to know. It is actually a term often used between a man and a woman becoming one, knowing each other. Adam knew Eve and she begat children to him. It's the same word that is used by the psalmist to say that God yadas us and desires for us to yada him. Again, I digress. Look at this, key point today, and I promise you, We'll be finishing up because I can actually smell the food wafting down, all right? The consequence of faith is joy. What do we gather from James chapter 1 there? The consequence of faith is joy. So consequence we oftentimes think of in negative terms, but it's also a positive thing. Really, the definition of consequence is the result of something, okay? It's the result of an action. <clears throat> so if you think of faith or joy being the result of faith, then that's what the key point is this morning. So how do we get joy from faith? Well, James tells us it comes through the testing process, the testing of our faith. And we don't usually think of testing as something that can bring us joy. How many of you have had a test in school before? Did it ever bring you joy? Right? You know, you gotta pass this test and you're crunching all night before because you neglected to study the rest of the time prior. What about a test of uh, anything in your life? Have you ever been tested? Have you ever gone and gotten a test, a medical test, and you're, it doesn't bring you joy because you're like, you get that biopsy or this other thing, and you're, that test is you're wanting it to be negative, right? And you're, you, it's not a joyful time in the waiting. You're anxious, you're worried. So how can we think of joy or testing as a process of joy? The word translated actually in, in James for the word troubles, trials, testing actually means temptation. And temptation is that which is laid before us and we are given a choice. And it's not usually of something good. Rarely do, are we tempted to do good. We are asked to do good. We are told that we should be good. We are often tempted to do bad, wrong, or evil. And so James is now saying, consider it joy, my friends, when you're tempted. Why? Because it gives you a choice. What is your choice? To give in to the temptation or not to? That is the question. What are we going to do? When we are tempted or tested, we have this great opportunity. Are we going to pass this test that is laid before us? It is a pass-fail exam. It is not an A, B, C, D, or F exam. The temptations that are laid before us are not always ones that are easy to overcome. I think of Jesus led into the wilderness. Do you know what it says Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan. But did you catch 
in the scripture who leads him there. <laughs> Isn't that mind-blowing? It says the Holy Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by whom? Satan. Because God does not tempt anyone. There is one tempter. So he's led into the wilderness to be tempted. Does he pass the test? He does. He does pass the test. Can we? Yes. Yes, we can. You see, as followers of Christ, when we prove faithful to stay the course and to not give up when the going gets tough and situations try to trip us up, we can stand with a sense of confidence and joy knowing that through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can be victorious just as Jesus was. When we are led into a situation and are presented with a temptation, we have an opportunity to make the right choice. And it's a cause for great joy because if we pass the test, it's not that it goes down into a record book in heaven that's counted for us, it's that it strengthens us, this side of heaven. Number two, the production or the growth of, of this testing um, helps our endurance to grow. As we looked at the word James used for troubles, trials, and testing, let's look at the word he uses for endurance. What is the word he uses for endurance? It can aptly be translated as patience. Did you know that? Endurance can be translated as patience. Have you ever heard somebody say, don't pray for patience because God will give it to you, right? That's exactly right. Well, that's the same scenario here. God, help me to endure is the same as saying, God, help me to have patience. Because you can't endure without patience. They are two and the same. Withstanding temptations and not stooping down to the level of our troubles has a way of producing or growing within us this staying power that strengthens our resolve. Those that are the strongest in the faith are the ones that have been tested and tempted and tried by the trials of life and of the evil in this world. And through Christ in them have become overcomers because he first overcame for them. It's the same along the lines of we can only love others because he first loved us with this agape, unconditional love. And as we pass these tests of life that get thrown our way, we grow not only in wisdom but in faith. We don't only grow in the knowledge like, oh, that's a lesson learned. I passed the test. I'll remember that next time. We don't only grow in wisdom and knowledge we grow in faith because we realize as we look back over the course of our lives, when we pass those tests, that we become stronger, that our faith has grown. And when we look, hindsight being 2020, we can say, God, I can see how you were with me. I can see where you were in that process. 
I could see your footprints in the dirt and the sand as we walked along in times that I thought I was all alone. I see those deep, dark valleys of the shadows of death where you were actually with me, and at the time, I didn't feel it. Your faith grows as you endure. And number three, here's the one that I told you we'd come back to. When our endurance grows, we become perfect and complete. The question is, is it possible to be perfect? Well, if you know what that means, yes. James uses this word that's translated as perfect or complete to describe the end result of testing and temptation. Aptly translated, the word he uses for perfection and completeness here means to be whole or wholly mature. What does it mean to be whole? So what is four-fourths? A whole. What is three-fourths? 75%, right? Two-fourths, 50%, a quarter, 25%. You see, without Christ, we are somewhere below the four-fourths. But with Christ, and through our endurance, when our faith is tested, we become more whole and complete. We become not partial anymore, but because of Christ in us. We, he, he makes up, if we're only three-fourths in and of ourselves, guess what he makes up the rest of? The one-fourth. Some of us may be only one-fourth. See, to whom much is forgiven. I mean, he, when he forgives, let's go back to the book of Romans. Let's look at that real quick. Grace abounds all the more in the sins of those whom have sinned greatly. And then there was this idea going around you know, with the Roman Christians. Well, I want more grace. So if I sin more, then God will give me more grace. Right? Because I love grace. God's grace is awesome. But if I haven't sinned that much, or if I'm a relatively good person, I'm still not perfect without Christ, but I want more grace, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to sin, I'm going to continue to sin so that this grace can abound all the more. And Paul says, no, God forbid that that would happen. Because when you leave the old life, you become a new creation. You don't go back to the old feeding trough. You sit at the banquet feast with the Father. And I see a lot of people going back to the old feeding trough, thinking they can do more for themselves than what God has already done for them. And they become less complete when they do that than they are when they stay squarely in the center of God's purposes and will for them, because that's when they are whole and perfect as he is perfect. See, you can't do that for yourself. You can't be perfect. That's why a lot of people go around, even in the faith, saying, I'm not perfect. No, you're not, but somebody has made you perfect if you believe in him and have surrendered your life to him. He has made you perfect because he is perfect. You have taken on that perfected image. In the very first book, in the very first chapter of the Bible, in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1, what does it say? God said, let us create man in our own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Were they perfect at that point? 
Yes, they were. Because Genesis 3 hadn't happened yet and the fall had not resulted. See, they were perfect. And then when the fall happened, everything broke. Every relationship in the world broke. And those image bearers of God did not reflect the image of God perfectly anymore. And from that beginning time, when you read the curses in Genesis 3, it even foreshadows a coming of someone who's going to have to set the record straight once and for all. It's a foreshadowing of a Messiah that would ultimately come who would crush the head of the serpent, the embodiment of evil. But that serpent would strike his heel. We know through Jesus Christ, death on the cross, the heel was struck of that man, the offspring of Eve. But through his death on the cross and the resurrection from the tomb, he dealt with the problem of sin and crushed the head of evil once and for all. So that when we believe in him, we don't perish but have everlasting life. That's why Peter and others in Scripture can say, you should be holy as he is holy. You are to be perfect as he is perfect. What does it mean to be holy? Holy means to be set apart. You want to define the word holy? New Testament or Old Testament? Things that were deemed holy were set apart. Are you set apart? You see, the reason for the birth of this Christ child so long ago that we are coming into the season of remembering wasn't for the purpose of us ooing and awing at his cuteness in the manger. It was for the very reason and purpose of bringing salvation to the world, dealing once and for all with the problem of sin and death so that we could have everlasting life with him in eternity. And it starts here. And now, as our worship team comes forward, I'm going to close with this illustration. There's a story told how in the 1800s, a group of women went to study the Bible in Dublin. They were puzzled by the words of Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, which says, And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. One of the ladies promised to call on a silversmith and report to them what he said on the subject. So she went accordingly, and without telling the object of her errand, she begged to know the process of what refining silver was. And the silversmith began to fully describe to her what it was about. But then she says, do you sit while working while the refining is going on? Or are you standing by the forge while the refining process is happening? And he goes, oh, yes, madam, replied the silversmith. I sit, I have to sit with my eyes steadily fixed on the furnace at all times. For if the time necessary for refining is exceeded in the slightest degree, the silver is sure to be injured. It has to be perfect. So I sit and I watch it to get to a certain point. At once, she ended up seeing this lady who went to the silversmith, ended up seeing the beauty and the comfort of the expression from Malachi 3.3. He shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. 
Christ sees it needful to allow his children into the furnace, but he is seated by the side of it. His eye is steadily intent on the work of purifying, and his wisdom and love are both engaged in the best manner for his children. Their trials do not come at random. And as the lady was leaving the shop, the silversmith ended up calling back to her and said that he still further forgot one thing. He said that he only knew that the process of purifying was complete when he could see his own image reflected in the silver perfectly. You see, when Christ's image is reflected in us, his work of purifying is accomplished. Let me close with these words from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. You see, we are pressed on every side by troubles, Paul says, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but we're never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're never destroyed. You see, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. The consequence of faith is joy because it perfects us and reflects within us the image of Christ. As we step into this Advent season, maybe not in the stereotypical way this month, because it has definitely not been a stereotypical year. How would we know that the year would have ended up this way? I find it interesting that God oftentimes knows where we're going to be at certain times and plans accordingly. You know how long ago these sermons were set up and planned? A while. How fitting we close out the year with reflecting on what troubles and trials do for us as the one who himself said, in this world you will have troubles of many kind, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And it's with that that we pray this day. Heavenly Father, remind us that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, suffering its shame. Remind us that it was joy that pressed you through the difficulties, trials, the beatings, the scourging, even to the point of death, where hanging on the cross, you had the wherewithal about you to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Don't only remind us of your suffering, 
but remind us of the suffering that we go through was nothing compared to the suffering you went through. And that when you went through it, you came through victorious. And remind us that as we keep firmly rooted in you through faith, that we can have joy that the trials and the troubles we face right now are nothing compared to the glorious riches of heaven. We love you, God. We surrender to you. We trust you no matter what's going on in this world or in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.